Thank you, Brother Dan. Those were some good songs today. He sang Lenore and I's favorite song, Had It Not Been the Lord, and we appreciate it. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Judges, chapter 16. That's where we're going to camp and spend most of our time this morning. Before we get started, I want to give a word of praise to all of you, which is about 70% of us who worked most of your life in the automobile industry. You know, you don't get that much praise anymore about it because people kind of expect that your product is what it's been for the last 10 years and kind of anticipate that. They expect it to be that way. But does anybody remember what it was like to have a car with a carburetor? Do you remember that? When I was in high school, I had the coolest car ever. I had a 1969 Pontiac Firebird. That was my first car. That was a dumb choice on my parents' part, by the way. But it had a 400 in it, and it would scream. I mean, now today you get a four-cylinder that'll do more than it would, but at that time, that was just the best car ever for a 16-year-old boy. I loved it. However, it was a love-hate relationship because it had a carburetor, an old carburetor. And if you remember, carburetors were very finicky. Does anybody remember that? I mean, depending on the weather, I'd have to get up, get out there, and it wasn't an exact science, you know. It had these screws on the, on the carburetor, and you'd have to adjust how much, you know, how rich it was or how lean it was, and sometimes you just couldn't get it right. And then if you've ever tried to rebuild one, you used to have to rebuild those things. So you'd take it off, and I would, there was no YouTube instructions at that time, so you'd just get a book or somebody tell you how to do it, or you'd just kind of figure it out as you went. And there was always parts left over. Did anybody ever have that problem? You put a carburetor, a four-barrel carburetor back together, and there's a spring, and there's a couple screws, and you're like, where did this go? And, and you work so hard trying to, you know, take it apart and put it back together, and the op- Tim's up here laughing. I, he knows. It, it's people like us that keep him in business. That's what the deal is. <laughs> So, you know, but if you've ever done that, the thing is, is that I haven't even thought about that for like 15 years, right? Because those cars, as fun as they might have been or how much, we were upset a lot. Everybody was because they weren't very consistent. You know, in certain weather, it would run better than it would in other weather and certain atmospheric conditions. And depending on its age and this, that, or the other. Today, regardless if it's 100 outside or negative 20, we go out and we turn over our vehicle and we, it just runs, you know, for the most part. It just runs. And it starts and it runs the same pretty much all the time. And, and I don't know if anybody's complimented all of you who spent your life developing and building automobiles, but they're way better than they used to be. Is that an amen? They're way better than they used to be. And the reason they're better is dependability and consistency. Consistency, it is a beautiful thing most of the time. But it is a double-edged sword because here's the thing. The beautiful things, the good things, the enjoyable things in life, like your car starting every single time and running the same, those are gloriously consistent. But there are some negative things that are pretty consistent too. Aren't there? I mean, Miss Lenora and I, we have loved each other and had a great, great marriage for almost 30 years now. 
But I can tell you there are some things that if I started to say certain things to her today, 100%, there is no question, it's absolutely consistent. She is going to be less pleasant to live with today. <laughs> and that is consistent. Certain things. The same is true with me. Now, I wish that I, no matter what I said or what I did, Miss Lenora was just the sweetest thing in the world, and she wishes that I were too. But consistently, that's not the case. And it's funny because we have these little sayings to help us realize that. The sayings like, the height of foolishness is to do the same things in the same way and expect a different outcome. What does that speak to? Consistency. Now, there's also the opposite side, the good side of consistency. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. So what does that mean? If something is going well and these, this process is producing the results you want, don't go mess with the process because what's going to happen? You're going to have results you don't want. Those both speak to the idea of consistency. Well, this morning's lesson is going to focus on consistency, but the consistency of something we wish were less consistent. The consistency of something that is agonizingly dependable, which is the consistency of sin. You know, it really isn't that tough to figure out. In fact, most of life is pretty simple to know about, to know what to do and what not to do. It's difficult to, to actually follow through with that and apply it, but it's pretty simple. Sin, like so many other things, is consistent. It's dependable. It will always lead a person to the same place. Always. The paycheck for sin, in Romans chapter 6, 23, it tells us the wages of sin is death. The paycheck of sin is death. And that is always, always the result. I mean, we may think that we can alter that result and, and buy into the height of foolishness to think that we can do the same things in the same ways and have a different outcome, but it's simply always the case. It is completely and utterly dependable and consistent. And perhaps the greatest case study of this in all the Bible is the story of the biblical superhero by the name of Samson. If you look back in Judges chapter 16, by this time Samson is already something to be reckoned with. He's already a national hero in Israel. He's the strongest man alive. Nearest we can tell, he's the strongest man who has ever lived on the face of this earth. And you'll remember he was a Nazarene and there were certain things that he abstained from all of his life and he never cut his hair. What Fabio locks he must have had, you know? I don't know if he kept it in a ponytail or what it was, but that was, just imagine him, muscular and strong, powerful with that big, beautiful mane like the lion that he was. And I mean, he was Israel's hero and savior. The most resistant and resilient enemy that Israel ever had were the Philistines. They were a constant problem. 
Many, many years later, David, of course, will have to slay Goliath, but Goliath wouldn't have had a chance against Samson. Nine feet tall or not, Samson had strength like no other man and courage like no other man. And we read here and we see in the first few verses that it starts off and it tells us, then Samson went to Gaza and he saw a harlot there and he went into her. First of all, let's be very clear. In the Bible, heroes are not addressed and revealed with what we call heroification. In other words, that's when your history books will tell you about some great man in history or woman in history, and they'll leave out the parts that history would rather forget. The Bible never does that. It's clear about both the strengths and very, very honest about the weaknesses of its heroes. Well, here we see Samson went up, and Samson's problem, his big weakness, was the ladies. It was. I mean, you see that again and again in his life. Right here, he goes up and he, he enters in and he joins with a harlot. And when the Gazites were told Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and they lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night saying, in the morning when it's daylight, we will kill him. Samson lay lo- laid low until midnight. Then he arose at midnight. Now, now just imagine this. Picture what happens here. He rose at midnight and he took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gate posts and pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Well, in a short month, Lenore and I are going to have to move all of our possessions. It'd be easy if we had Samson. (laughs) Samson could throw the refrigerator and the washer and the dryer, and the couch, and carry them all. I mean, he carries the gates, not just the gates, big metal or stone gates. He carries the posts. He rips it out of the gate, out of the ground, throws it on his shoulder, and carries it to the top of a hill. No wonder the Philistines were so very terrified of him. You see, We're going to see that sin will bring down the most powerful man that's ever walked this earth. And is it any wonder then that when we engage in sin, it brings us down? Is it any wonder that anyone who thinks that they can water down sin, that no matter how they feel they can dilute its potency, it still always results in the same thing? Because regardless, as strong as Samson was without the Lord and refraining from it, sin was stronger. It was stronger. And when we think we can water it down, dilute it, you know, kind of flirt with it a little bit, what really is happening is we're thinking we can water down strychnine or poison. You know what happens when you water down a poison like strychnine? It doesn't necessarily kill you immediately. It just kills you slower. But it still kills you. That's what sin is. It's the poison of mankind. The great disease of mankind. And so 
Samson, he thinks he can handle anything. He can. He's never faced a foe he couldn't beat. He will make, take a, a makeshift, the jawbone of a donkey, and he'll defeat hordes of Philistines by himself with a makeshift weapon. There's nothing Samson can't beat. So he thinks he can have his cake and eat it too. That he can even beat, that sin can't even bring him down. And his story really starts in verse 4. The story of his downfall to the consistency of sin. You see, as we start in, it says in verse 4 through about verse 20, and we'll just kind of hit some highlights here. It says, afterwards happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came to her and said, entice him and find out where his great strength lies and by what means we can overpower him that we may bind him and afflict him and every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Now Jesus was sold for far, 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 far less. This is a magnificent fortune she's being offered. So her loyalties aren't to Samson, they're to the Philistines, but mostly her loyalty is to herself. And so it says that indeed, so Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and what you may be bound to afflict you. Now, wouldn't you think that Samson would have gotten the hint? You know, if you fall in love, but young man, let me just give you a word of advice. If you fall in love with a young lady, and on your third date, she says, oh, by the way, what are all of your internet passwords to your bank accounts? It's probably not the best idea just to give her a false password because on time number four, you're going to give her the real one and you're going to be broke. That's what Samson's story teaches you. Because you should take the hint up front, this is not the girl for me. And Samson, let's be very clear, He's not dumb. He knows exactly what she's doing. And we're going to see by the text because he doesn't tell her. But why doesn't he just say, well, I'm never going to tell you that. So stop asking because he wants her, but he also wants to keep his secret and keep his power. He wants it all, doesn't he? He wants to keep the sin in his life and compartmentalize that sin where it doesn't impact his life, he thinks he can control it all. That's what he thinks. Just like everyone in the history of this world that has ever been destroyed by sin. At some point in the beginning, they thought they could control it all. Isn't that right? And so Samson's about to learn an extremely extremely valuable lesson. So Samson said to her, verse seven, if you bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings and yet not dried and she bound them to him. And then there were men lying in wait, staying with her in the room. And she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Now, here's the thing. It says that they were in the room with her when she says, your strength. I mean, he breaks those bowstrings. What happens to those guys in the room with her? 
I think that's called scattering like flies, right? But here's the amazing thing about it. Delilah doesn't get the boot. I mean, if he thought it was a red flag before that she asks him, what's the secret to your strength? That's one thing. But what about, what about when she actually binds him and has the enemies in the room ready to kill him or capture him and he wakes up and does breaks exactly what he told her? He knows who betrayed him. He knows it. But he keeps her. Samson's not dumb, but he is foolish in his arrogance. He knows he has a weakness. He's just not going to tell her. And he thinks, yeah, she's trying to kill me. (laughs) Yeah, but she's pretty. But I like being with her. You know what? I I can deal with this manipulation for a while. That is the height of foolishness. And it is the height of arrogance. Continues on, and the story certainly doesn't end there. It says in verse 10, then Delilah said to Samson, look, you have mocked me and told me lies. My response would be, yeah, but look, you tried to kill me. (laughs) But she says, look, you mocked me. You've told me these lies. Now, please tell me what may bind you. And so he said to her, if they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and like any other man. Therefore, Delilah took new ropes and bound them to him and said, the Philistines are upon you. And there were men lying in wait, staying in the room, but he broke them off his arms like a thread. Okay. Fool me once. Fool me twice. Surely Delilah is going to get the boot on this, right? Then Delilah, verse 13, said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me what you may bound with. And he said to her, if, if you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of a loom. So she wove it tightly in the pattern of a loom and said to the Philistines, here, Philistines are upon you. Said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. He woke from his sleep, pulled the batten from the web from the loom. We hate to say it, But whatever happens to Samson, he gets getting exactly what he deserved. Because what arrogance, what foolishness. That just because his sin hasn't destroyed him yet. To be with a woman who he knows that's her ultimate aim. Yet he thinks he can control it. Until it says in verse 15, then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times. And you wonder, why, Samson, why didn't you say, how can you say you love me when you want to kill me? He didn't care about her love. That's not what he, he knows she doesn't love him. He just thinks he can juggle all of this forever. When your heart is not with me, you've mocked me. And it came to pass when she, did you know this word's in the Bible? When she pestered him. When she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death. Here's the thing. Then Samson, get a different woman. 
but he doesn't. His soul was vexed to death, so he told her all his heart, and he said to her, no razor has ever come upon my head. Verse 18, when Delilah saw that he had told her all of his heart, she said to the Philistines, come up one more time. Then she lulled him to sleep, verse 19, on his knees, called for a man and had him shave the seven locks of his head. And then she began to torment him and his strength left him. Now, what I want us to see by this is when Samson first, and knowing he shouldn't have been in a relationship with Delilah in the first place, Samson didn't realize this profound truth of sin. There are three that are going to bring brought out in his story. First of all, number one, sin will always take you farther than you wanted to go. It will always take you farther than you intended. In fact, as he started off this process with Delilah, he didn't expect to be at this point. He had never dreamed that he would reveal that to her. He never dreamed because he knew he was strong and he knew that would be his downfall. And he knew she wanted to kill him. So he's never going to tell her. But then she pestered him and she pestered him. And isn't that exactly what sin does? It pesters. You say, I'm only going to go this far. You know, there have been very few addicts who said, I'm only going to, you know, use heroin once. And that was true. Or once a day, and that was true. It just doesn't do that because the sin pesters you, doesn't it? See, sin's never satisfied with a little bit. And it's patient. And it gnaws, and it gnaws, and it gnaws. And it always, always, always will take you farther than you intended to go. Every single time. It'll take it farther than you intended to go. It cannot be controlled. Here's a word of advice. Do not get a pet raccoon. You didn't expect that one, did you? But there's a reason for it. Raccoons have a beautiful pelt. So make you a hat if you need to, but don't have one as a pet. Raccoons, when they're little, can be sweet. And you know, you can take a baby raccoon and it'll snuggle with you and and it can, they're very intelligent animals. And it's kind of neat. They have hands like we do, and they can do a lot of... But they'll tell you that for the first period of a raccoon's life, they make a pretty good pet. But when they reach adolescence and adulthood, a glandular change takes place within. And suddenly, your sweet little raccoon is no longer a sweet little raccoon. Suddenly, he becomes everything we know about raccoons which in my mama's Kentucky word is ornery. You know? And they'll hurt you, and they'll get into everything, and they'll hurt things, and they'll taunt your other animals. I mean, it's just not a good thing. But you see, sin's kind of that way too in the beginning. It can seem sweet. It can seem harmless. It can seem like it can be controlled. But then, before you even realize it, you know that Samson had to think when he finally told her, how did I get here? How did I get here? It's because sin will always take you farther than you wanted to go. Look at verse 21. 
Verse 20 tells us, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. He awoke, and I will go out in bed at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters, and he became a grinder in the prison. He loses his eyes. He certainly never intended that. He loses his strength. He loses his freedom. He was a man among men, a hero. And now he's a slave grinding their wheat, blind and utterly defeated. And that tells us very emphatically, sin, not only will it take you farther than you wanted to go, it will always, it's consistent. It will always keep you longer than you wanted to stay. Always. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's a really relevant text where it talks about in the hall of faith, Moses, and it says in verse 24, by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And then this verse is the, is the really appropriate one for us today. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. You see, if only he could have listened to that message from Moses' life, Samson wouldn't have been in this place because sin indeed has pleasure. But it's always, it's always, it's always passing pleasure. It doesn't endure. It'll always take you farther than you wanted to go. And it'll always keep you so much longer than you ever intended to stay. Which leads us to the third truth brought out in his life. We look down and we know the story. He, he grinds their grain. He's blind. He's a slave. He's mocked. He's ridiculed. He's mistreated. But as time goes by, no one seems to notice that his hair begins to grow again. And then we look down in verse 30 and see the end of the story, where it says, Then Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all of his might, and the temple fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead that killed, he killed in his death were more than he killed in his life. You see, Samson could have been God's hero till the day he died and died in his sleep as an aged man with his family all around him. That's what could have happened if he hadn't have given in to sin. But now, God still brings about the victory in his life, but it's at the cost of his own life. You see, not only will sin take you farther than you ever wanted to go, not only will it keep you farther than you ever wanted to stay, but it will always, it will always consistently cost you more than you were willing to pay. He didn't want to pay his life, but that was the only option he had left. You see, when we think of sin like this, sometimes the consequences are dire. Now, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. If we repent and come back to him, God can work it out in our lives, but it won't be the same 
as if we'd chosen to give up sin in the first place. There will be lasting consequences. The truth of sin is that once it's been wallowed in long enough, once it's been allowed to move far enough, that it can be too late not to have some repercussions from it, for it not to cost you more than you intended. My grandfather was a coal miner in the mines of Kentucky. And he passed away at a relatively young age of 60 years old. He had a heart attack, but the heart attack was brought on when they did the autopsy by all of the soot in his lungs. He had what they called black lung disease. And you know, when he was 20 working in those mines, had he went to the doctor, he wouldn't have felt, I mean, he smoked all of his life like everybody did back then. And he worked in those coal mines, in those dark, you know, sooty coal mines all of his life. And, you know, if he'd went at 20 or at 30 or at 40 years of age to the doctor, he would have said, I feel strong, I feel healthy, but there still would have been some buildup in those lungs. You see, once that poison started in his lungs, it was accumulating. It's true with asbestos. People who worked with asbestos, they didn't even see the symptoms for a long, long time, right? It accumulated. It's probably true if you eat bacon all the time, too. You know, it, that builds up in your arteries over time. And it's more abundantly true than with anything else of sin. When you allow sin to build up in your life, you may not feel the effects right away. But in the end, it will always cost you more than you are willing to pay. You see, Samson provides us a powerful, powerful illustration of what sin actually is and what it does. It is consistent. It's dependable. It always has the same results sooner or later, for the wages of sin is death. So what's the solution? Well, if sin always, I mean every single time, you don't have to wonder about it. It's not like you can be the exception to the rule. You ain't a superhero. A superhero couldn't do it. Sin was stronger than him. Sin will always, always consistently take you farther than you wanted to go. It will always keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And it will always cost you more than you were ever willing to pay. So what's the solution? Be ye holy as I am holy. As Paul would say in Philippians chapter 1, Therefore, live your lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Paul would say in Colossians, set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. You see, why is it the Lord tells us constantly to be holy, to be righteous? Is it because he's trying to strip us of any fun in life? Is it because he's trying to keep us from enjoying this world? No, because he doesn't want us to poison ourselves little by little. Because sin, no matter what you think in the moment, just like drugs, when a person shoots up for the first time, they don't realize the road they've started themselves down. Sin is poison, even in small increments. And it, it's always the same. It always takes you farther. 
It always keeps you longer. It always costs you more. So what do we do? Well, I love the Psalm in 119. We read it last week, so we won't go back and read through it again. But you remember the psalmist says, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And you remember in Ephesians chapter 6 when it talks about the armor of God, we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, which is our offensive weapon. But we have several defensive tools, don't we? The helmet of salvation that protects our minds to know that we have God on our side, to know that we're saved. There's a protection for our minds in that helmet. But then he talks about the shield of faith. Real faith can defeat the enemy, but anything that gets past that shield, there's only one thing left protecting our heart. It's the breastplate of righteousness. And yes, I know we talk a lot about, well, we have his imputed righteousness. Yes, but we can never discount the importance in Scripture of us being a people who pursue righteousness, who pursue a life where we root root out sin in our life, and we will all struggle with it till the day we die, but it needs to be our daily mission to root it out, to put it away, because when you flirt with sin, the results are consistent. And he says, what will protect your heart is a breastplate of righteousness. You see, Samson thought he was strong enough. He didn't think he needed a shield. He didn't think he needed a breastplate. He was wrong. Today, if there's some sin that's destroying your life, if I say if there's some sin in your life, that's everybody in here. I mean, it's a constant, the greatest ambition of the Christian life, the ultimate ambition is to conquer yourself. But you know what I mean. If there's someone in here today that sin, it's got a hold of you. And you're already along this path. And you're at the point where you're pretty much, you've gone farther than you wanted to go. That's the first step. Pretty soon what's going to happen is it's going to keep you much longer than you wanted to stay. And then tragically, eventually, it'll cost you so much more. It may cost you your family. It may cost you your friendships. It may cost you your soul or your life. Wherever you are in that process, It is never too late. Samson could have, on the first one, he could have said, see you, Delilah. But he didn't. On the second one, he could have said, there's the door. But he didn't. Don't get to the point where sin pastors you so bad that there's destruction in your life. You need to come today. Nobody here will judge you because you're in a a room of recovering sinner. All we want to do is lift you up. You don't have to get specific with what your sin is. We don't need to know. But if you just want to say to the Lord and ask us to pray with you, Lord, help me with my sin. I promise you, we'll all make a covenant. Nobody's going to be guessing. Oh, I wonder what he's done. I wonder what she's done. No. We just want to lift you up. We want to help you hide his word in your heart. We want to help you say to Delilah, there's the door. If you need to say it to her today, come right now as we stand and as we sing.